Welcome aboard on Consider Everything. I'm your host, Brig Haynes, and let's go explore today to improve our mental health tomorrow. So I'm here with Leslie Hill. She is a psychiatrist here at USU, an adolescent psychiatrist. Is that correct? I am a child and adolescent psychiatrist. That's right. Okay. And I thought for today, I don't know if you've read the book, The Lord of the Flies, but there's that conch <laughs> where they get to speak. Whoever has the conch. So I thought we'd have you with the conch mostly today. So for the beginning, I would hand you the conch because I want you to introduce yourself, just talk about who you are, where you came from, and why you're doing what you are doing today. Sure. Okay. So, um, yes, I'm Dr. Wesley Hill. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I am a clinical uh, assistant professor um, in the psychiatry department at USU, Utah State University. Awesome. Yeah. And I thought I read a little bit about your about page, and I also saw that you were a advocate for the LGBTQ plus community, which I thought was really cool. And I did do a little bit of research on that community specifically because I'm not part of that, but I wanted to get to, a little, get to know a little bit more about that community. And I found that that community has a higher susceptibility to developing a mental illness. Not that they do, but they have a higher susceptibility. And the research that I found saw that or showed that a lot of times they're bullied in school. They feel like they're not a part of the society because from what I could read, society has mostly been heterosexual teachings, right? And so they feel like they're not a part of it and they feel like they're going to be excluded from a lot of things just because they're homosexual or they, they identify as something else. So is that is that the case? Have you known, like, with some of the adolescents that you work with, I know you're, you're an advocate, have you worked with LGBTQ plus kids that are struggling with mental illness and trying to overcome those things? Yeah, for sure. So let me preface by saying by no means am I an expert in mm-hmm. LGBTQ issues, um, and I don't want to speak for the community as a whole. Um, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of contact in my field. Um, I got I have a lot of kids um, who are really struggling. And um, yes, you're right. There's a higher prevalence of mental illness um, and for various reasons. But I, I think you're probably spot on with just more trauma in general mm-hmm. from society would, would be my guess of, of why. There are some varying theories of where mental illness comes from. But the predominant one is that there is a underlying genetic component and then often there are environmental environmental triggers for it as well. And you're right, trauma is one of the biggest ones. Um, there's a really big study called the ACEs study um, that the CDC did in like the 90s. It's thousands and thousands of people, and they looked at basically ACEs stands for um, uh, traumatic experiences in childhood or um, adverse experiences in childhood. And basically, the more of those that you rack up, the more likely you are to have worse mental and physical health as an adult. I was born and raised in Florida, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, did most of my medical training there um, at the University of Florida, and um, just moved out to Utah in the last four years or so, and have been really enjoying hiking and skiing and uh, love animals and the outdoors. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about that a little earlier. I thought that was really cool, especially if moving from super warm to here to Utah, where it can be warm, but then there, there's extremes going on all the time, big change. but it was a big change, but there's a lot of cool things here, and I'm sure there's a lot of cool things down in Florida. So I thought we'd switch more into the actual medication side of things because you are a psychiatrist and I wanted to just kind of get to the root here, right? Ask a big question. We'll kind of spread out from there. So the big question I have, and I'm sure a lot of people do have, is how important is medication for the curing of mental illness? Interesting word choice with curing. Or not curing, but, you know, preventing or, again, you're the one, you're the expert. So I, I yeah, will, sure. Yeah. I think of it more in terms of remission. 
So if you have a major depressive episode um, and you go into remission, you can have absolutely no symptoms of it anymore. And I guess you could call that cure, but there's Mm -hmm. always a risk it's coming back. Just like if you have cancer um, and you go through a round of chemo and there's no evidence of cancer, you're still going to want to have screenings every couple of years because there's a risk it could come back. Um, So I think of it more in terms of that. Um, But going to your question about medication, that's really person dependent. Mm-hmm. There are some people who are able to um, go into remission from therapy alone and lifestyle changes, and there are some people who, no matter what they do, they're going to need medication. Really? Yeah. I actually, some research I was doing on my own, preparing myself for this interview, I saw that some of the, the two main illnesses that require medication for a lifetime is bipolar and schizophrenia. Is that true? That's a pretty good rule of thumb, yes. Um, There are some people who can get away with being off of medication for certain amounts of time, but the risk of relapse is very high without medicine. Okay, just for those two two big ones, the schizophrenia and bipolar. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So in your opinion, do some people who are skeptical of medicine nowadays, is that valid? Or like, do they have some validity to what they're believing? Or is that just what the media is and what other people are telling them, convincing them that of something that isn't true? Well, I think it's always good to have a healthy level of skepticism for any medical intervention. Um, It's good to ask questions and not just blindly do whatever your doctor is telling you. Um, You have to have a trusting relationship and it's okay to be skeptical. Um, My thought is there is a lot of misinformation online and there's a lot of different types of medicine and a lot of different types of people. So if you have one person who's had a really bad experience on a certain medicine for whatever reason, and they're going to go online and talk about it, that's totally valid, and they have the right to do that. But it also might be a little bit misleading for other people for whom that medicine might be super helpful. Yeah, that's that's a hard thing nowadays, too, because there's so many opinions out there that that's part of the reason why I think people get very confused. They're like, well, why why is this happening? You know, why... Why are there so many opinions? Why does this person say this? Why does this person say that? So I think a lot of people are getting confused on what actually is the truth. And like you were saying, it may be not going on the internet <laughs> to get your information about what medication will work best is probably the best thing to do. Do you have anything else to say about that? As far as say somebody out there who's a listener is confused and, they've, and they're a little skeptical of medication, what, what would be the main thing you'd tell them? I would say to find a good doctor that you really trust, who you can talk about all of your fears about it, and see if it's the right thing for you. So kind of getting down to more of what medication actually is, I've always wondered this, and I did a little research, but is there, are there like, for multiple medications, are there certain ingredients that are the same over multiple medications? Like, are there certain ingredients that apply to all kinds of mental illness medication, or is it different for every kind of medication that's out there? Well, there are a lot of different psychiatric medicines. There are hundreds of them, and they're all a little bit different. Some of them are very similar um, and sort of grouped in the same category of medicines, and some of them are very different from each other. So it varies pretty widely. And do you, so what are some of those ingredients? Do you know what actually they're comprised of? Because I've always wondered, you know, what are they giving me in this pill, right? (laughs) Like what exactly is in this pill? You don't have to like tell every ingredient, but are there some, some ingredients that we'd recognize? That you'd recognize? Yeah, that, that us listeners would recognize. 
Um, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> I don't think so. There's basically, um, it's synthesized like from an organic chemist. And so they're using things like hydrochloric acid and, and combining different things and distilling it and making yeah. the final product. And it's really complicated and beyond my understanding, <laughs> yeah. to be perfectly honest. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. Yeah. That's what I was wondering. Just because for me, I was like, well, you know, if you get a, like if you get a fish oil pill, you know exactly what you're getting. Fish oil, right? Yeah. Well... For, I guess, a lot of people, they're probably wondering what the heck is in this pill, this pill right? Yeah. And so, I don't know, since, since you're a psychiatrist, did you did you deal more with just learning about the medication? Or like, did you learn about what's inside the medication as a psychiatrist? Or Well, we learn what's in it. Well, so, for example, a medicine like Prozac, one of the most common ones, uh, the it's uh, fluoxetine is the actual ingredient that's in it. And then mm-hmm. it comes with some other, like, binders and stuff that make up the, the pill and the capsule. Um, but that's the actual ingredient and we know what that does in your body. Yeah. So that's kind of the per- pertinent part for us. So you guys are more of learning what's, what the medication is best suited for kind of thing. So, yeah. Rather than how to actually manufacture it. Yeah. And understanding what the process behind it. You guys don't really learn the manufacturing part. You're more of yeah. learning about that's how. That's more the basic science gotcha. part. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Especially the, there's a lot of different types of medications nowadays, but are there medications besides antidepressants that improve mental health nowadays? Yeah, and it really depends on what the illness is. So antidepressants are really helpful for depression and anxiety in certain people, like with unipolar depression, not bipolar depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a different type of depression, like bipolar depression, or you have schizophrenia or PTSD, that's going to possibly use a different type of medicine. Uh, the, the the most complicated thing for me about medication is is knowing you know, what it applies for. And this is one of the biggest questions I had in here was, so if you're looking at somebody and you're, you're dealing with them, you've dealt with them and talked with them for, I don't know, say a week or something like that, right? And you, do you know exactly from just looking at them and understanding their story, are you going to know exactly what kind of medication they're going to need or is it kind of a trial and error? If you do a really good job and get a thorough history from your patient and um, especially like collateral history from family members they might want to bring in. I see primarily kids, so I'm talking to kids and families and sometimes teachers. You Mm -hmm. get a good picture of what's going on. You can be pretty sure, but you can't be 100% sure. Yeah. So you can tell the the parent or and the kid, you know, from whatever you're telling me and from what I'm seeing, I think you probably have ADHD and I think this would probably be the best medicine for it. Um, here are the other backup options in case this doesn't work or, you know, we need to rethink the diagnosis. So you got to kind of keep an open mind, especially when it comes to kids because they're developing and changing a lot. Right. And I, I did a little research on parents and how they, how they feel about medication. And from what I saw, again, I'm no researcher, like I, I haven't gotten a major in researching or anything, but from what I could see and going more scholarly things, I saw that a lot of parents are pretty skeptical of handing their kids medication have you noticed this in your own practice, especially since you deal with adolescents and young kids? Have you noticed that some of the parents are like, eh, I don't... Generally, those parents don't get to me. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. I'm a psychiatrist, so if you're coming to see me, you generally want to have your child oh, on medication or at okay. least want to think about the option of it. I think another thing that I saw from the, the research I did as well is that they're skeptical because of not only what the media tells them, but... Sometimes they feel that their kids are getting tossed around different medica- like, with different medications. Yeah. And it can appear as if the psychiatrist or whoever they're dealing with doesn't know what they're talking about. And another piece of research I did showed that I think 59% of medications are prescribed by family doctors. 
And you can correct me on this, but from what I could see is family doctors don't, they don't, they, don't, they haven't majored in psychiatry or psychology. And so they don't know much about it other than they get a list of this, these are the symptoms. If the kid matches up, then give them this medication. And for me, that seems a little weird that 59% of family, 59% of our medication is getting handed out by family doctors, especially when I feel it should be the, the psychiatrists, the ones that know about the medication, know what behaviors apply to a certain medication. So what would you say when you hear that it's 59% of, peop- of family doctors prescribing this, would you say that is, is kind of an issue, kind of not? Is there something we're missing here? What's your opinion on that? It's an interesting number, and I, I believe it. I think the problem is that there are not enough psychiatrists, <laughs> and there are not enough child and adolescent psychiatrists in particular. So, for example, um, I'm, or I was, I'm moving now, but I was one of the only child psychiatrists in the Valley where there are thousands and thousands of kids. Oh. Um, so I've got a year-long wait list right now. Yeah, I know. It's a bummer. So, um, I mean, the pediatricians are doing their very best to stem the tide. Yeah. Um, You know, and and we all have basic medical training. They all did psychiatry in medical school. They all have some base knowledge of it. But Mm -hmm. different pediatricians have different levels of comfort with psychiatric meds. So some of them, not interested, don't want to touch it, um, just refer out. Some of them do um, continuing education on it and get really well-versed in them and do a pretty good job. Yeah. So it's really dependent on how comfortable they feel, how much extra training they've had in it. Um, so it varies a lot, but it's I think they're all doing their best to get people by when it's really hard to get into a psychiatrist. So that makes sense. That's probably what's the reason why they're prescribing so much is not because they want to, it's because they have to. Yes, oftentimes they don't want to. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be great. And I, I have them call me up all the time and be like, hey, I've got this kid. I've tried this and this. He's still four months out on your wait list. What can I do? And so I can help a little bit that way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really a problem. I know that there's at least the three main medications for mental illness from what I saw are the serotonin or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, the neuropronephrine dopamine reuptake inhibitor. And what was the other one? Oh my gosh. Don't tell it to me. <laughs> it's coming back. Uh, serotonin dopamine. There are various different antidepressants that oh. work on those various neurotransmitters. Are those like, is that just kind of the, what are, the, what are those, when I hear those, why do people say those as the main medications? Is there a reason why SSRIs and NDRIs and whatever the other one was, <laughs> SNRIs. Why, why are those so talked about? Yeah, so those are the relatively newer ones. So we've got some old school antidepressants like the tricyclics and um, the MAOIs. Those are kind of the first ones that were developed in like the 50s and beyond. And um, they can be very effective, but they also tend to have worse side effects. Um, You need to have dietary restrictions with some of them, and um, they can be very lethal in overdose. So these are pretty much used exclusively first line because they are uh, better tolerated, better side effects, and safer. Are there people that just have naturally lower dopamine or serotonin or neopronephrine levels? Because I know that, again, from the research that I was looking at, showed that if we're going to look at chemically what's going wrong with somebody who has a mental illness, it's usually a lack in one of those three areas or a mix of both. Is that true? It's a little bit oversimplified, I think, to say that. Um, It 
basically has to do with various neurotransmitters, some of which are serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, but there's also like acetylcholine and GABA and glutamate. And there's, there's other ones that are involved too. Yeah. And it's not just having a low level. There are different circuits in your brain. So there are different areas of your brain that project, for instance, a serotonin neuron over to this other area. Mm-hmm. And um, that can be the part that malfunctions. And it's not, ex- so it's not exactly like there's low serotonin. It's there may be not enough where it needs to be when it needs to be there type of thing. Okay. So their brain doesn't operate correctly or uses it in the right way. It's really complex. Yeah. Jeez. I feel like there's so many variables to this. And, is, yeah. and I bet well, for me, like speaking about the different things that could go wrong with somebody, if you want to speak about, or just tell us a little bit about what are some of those things that fit chemically you can see within a child that's wrong. So say you have a kid who has depression, right? Or whatever it is. Are there certain things that you can notice physically in their brain or through a brain scan that shows that they might have a mental illness? Is is that the case or is that, yeah. In research settings, yes. Um, In practical clinic everyday settings, no. Yeah. So we don't do like brain scans to diagnose depression, for instance. There are a lot of studies on that and they show some consistencies like um, a smaller hippocampus and frontal lobe and bigger ventricles. There are certain like brain changes you can see on scans, um, but it's not totally consistent. So that's not how it is for everyone. So you can't scan someone's brain and say they are depressed. Yeah. Um, so it's not clinically terribly useful because if you were to do that, but they're sitting there telling you I'm depressed, you're going to do something about it anyways. Right. Right. We'll see nowadays that the, the pharmaceutical industry is, is looked at as pretty evil. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you noticed that, but I noticed, um, you've probably been in that, you know, since you've been a psychiatrist and it's, it's been looked at as kind of a an evil, I don't know what you call it, evil corporation. Sure. Is that is that the case? Because I, I know this has been going around, especially me being a part of social media. Some people, it's a very few people, a very few amount of people that are saying that the, the big pharma is good. Some <laughs> people are saying that it's not great and they're taking advantage of people, especially because we'll see nowadays that, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if you know Darren Elkins, if you worked with him, he's, he, okay, well he was, He's like the main therapist at Blumquist Hale, a uh, big company here in Utah, and I, I interviewed him. He's a therapist, and he said that medication should only really be used when necessary. Again, he's a therapist, so he doesn't know much about medication. He even mentioned that in the podcast. He's like, yeah, again, I'm not going to speak for everybody because I'm not a psychiatrist, but from what I've noticed, it should only be when somebody's so deep in a rut that they can't even work with him, where they're, they're so stuck in, in trauma or depression, whatever it is, that they just need some medication but it should only be used for a certain amount of time. Is that is that really the case for everybody besides I bipolar? I have a little bit looser um, opinion when it comes to that. I mm-hmm. think that you need to look at risk versus benefit for any medicine. And that's going to be kind of a personal decision for the patient. So I'm not the one that's dictating that. I get to tell them what I think is going on and what I think will help and the risks and benefits of it. And they get to decide, yeah, that sounds worth it. Yeah. So you can have a moderate depression where you're not like so severely profoundly depressed you can't get out of bed or you're catatonic but still Mm -hmm. choose medication because it may get you better quicker um and you know if you find a good one that's not going to cause any side effects sure why not but i definitely agree with the sentiment that um it should only be used um you know in the right circumstances Mm -hmm. and enough that um it shouldn't be overused basically so you know if someone doesn't need it there's no point in giving it but if it might be helpful yeah go for it have you seen in your own practice that there are those that kind of just hand it out like candy 
that take that obviously i'm not saying there's always bad apples in everything you do i'm not saying that but have you seen a, that there are quite a few of your co-workers not even co-workers just people you know that are psychiatrists as well where maybe they're not willing, not willing to put in the work to get to know their history to get to know exactly what's going on instead they just give them medication be like okay i think this is it and they take really quick guesses before actually knowing what's going on yeah, I think there can be some really um, frustrating overprescribing. I think a part of the problem is um, a lot of times in private practice and in certain clinical settings, um, doctors don't have a ton of time with patients. Mm. So I kind of have a really luxurious job here in academics where I can spend as much time as I want. I take two hour intakes for new patients and an hour for follow ups. Um, you know, so I can really take my time. If I'm working in a hospital setting and I've got to get through 40 patients in a day, there, you just can't do it. Like you right. physically can't do it. Um, well, a good job. You yeah, know? which makes sense. Why family doctors usually just give you a, a list and say, "Hey, do you match up with these things?" And if so, we'll give you this medication because they've got probably ten other patients lined up behind them. And going back to the big pharma question, what's your opinion on you know the big pharma idea? What what are your ideas on that? Um, what what in particular? Um, so what are your do you, do you agree with some of what people are saying? How it they are taking advantage of people and you know prescribing medication and, and making it seem as if they need to go on this lifelong in order to feel normal because a lot of people especially on the internet say that big pharma what they do is they're almost a corporation where they take advantage of people's fear so for instance nobody wants to feel depressed or or sad right and especially if you can tell somebody that if you feel if you feel sad sometimes or if you feel depressed then you got to get a medication to, to fix that and so they'll bank on that, even though they may just need to walk outside a little more or exercise or whatever it is, but instead they bank on people's emotions. Do, do, does that make any sense to you? Is that how Big Pharma actually is perceived? or, or what It are your... makes sense to me that their goals would be to make as much money as they can. Yeah. <laughs> and so like putting out the commercials with the, the sad blue cloud or whatever, you know, like I, I definitely see what you're talking about. Um, I don't know. I don't know that it should impact. It doesn't impact my prescribing, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So I think a lot of people are worried um, that like doctors are in cahoots with big pharma and like we get kickbacks or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But like it doesn't matter. I don't own stock in Prozac. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, like I'm not going on cruises or anything from the big pharma companies. Right. So I'm only going to prescribe a medicine if I think it's going to benefit my patient. Um, so I guess it could be a little bit reassuring that way that. Um, they're not like infiltrating the doctors and, yeah. <laughs> and making us well, do unethical things. Yeah, I think there's money. this whole uh, conspiracy theory going on that you know, big pharma and all the doctors are, are working together to just make you independent and somebody who has to always rely on them and pay them money. Because if you think about it, if somebody's independent or dependent on you, that's money, right? So I can see where they're coming from, but also like you're saying, if, if you're separate and you're not getting you know, you're not sponsoring them or getting right. cruises, then that would make a lot of sense how, yeah, they might create their own medications, but at the same time, you're separate. So you only use their stuff when you see it applies. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I think the most frustrating part for me is there are these new awesome medicines coming out and sometimes they're just not affordable for people. So there'll be like a new antipsychotic that doesn't have any weight gain associated with it, but I can't get it because it's like a thousand dollars a month for my patient. <laughs> yeah. So like that's the part that can get really frustrating. Is is having to work with them because they are one big corporation. So you're like, well, could you lower the prices? But for them, it might be that. I mean, they're they're a corporation, right? So they're looking for money, 
But would you, if if you had, to, if you could change something about Big Pharma, what would you change? Oh gosh, I don't know. Everything would be super affordable. Yeah, super affordable. Is there anything else that you that you change about it? I don't know much about it, to be perfectly yeah. honest. I, I don't know either. I just thought I was just thinking that maybe you had a bigger eye into what Big Pharma looks like, especially being somebody who uses their medications and everything like that. And I, I notice also nowadays. A lot of people are misdiagnosed with a mental illness. I saw that. I think it was over, I can't remember the study that I, I did, but um, a lot of people are misdiagnosed with a medication. And so they start taking medication and it actually doesn't apply to what they, they, you know, they are showing. And so if that's the case, do you think that maybe like you're saying with your coworkers that we need to teach doctors to be a little more careful or psychiatrists to be a little more careful and a little bit more invested in the actual patient i think that again speaks to the issue of the time management problem Mm -hmm. in in medicine i think if if all doctors had you know luxurious amounts of time to spend enough time with their patients the diagnosis would probably be better um i honestly don't know what rates of like mis quote misdiagnosis are um that would probably be pretty hard to measure but uh, yeah a lot of things um it's not an exact science there's a lot of it that's like subjective so it's not going to be perfect every time for sure and i think training is adequate for for doctors for psychiatrists um but uh yeah there are various reasons i think why people get misdiagnosed the other thing is you have to kind of keep in mind um that you have to not have a one-track mind with the diagnosis so if all the evidence is pointing to this diagnosis and you try something and it backfires it doesn't work you need to be able to rethink the plan and have a little bit of flexibility there to say like maybe i was wrong there maybe this is actually this you know i noticed that maybe it's just a utah thing or not i don't know but i've noticed that a lot of people believe that physical doctor people that deal with you know cancer or broken leg whatever it is doctors that are not dealing with the mental illness field but are more dealing with physical illness and they it makes it maybe they make it seem as if they know more than what's going on with, you know, those that are part of the mental field and the mental illness field. I don't know if that, I know that people are really skeptical about mental illness, but they're not too skeptical about a doctor, you know, trying to cure their broken leg or something wrong with their leg. Is there there a reason why people are so skeptical about that? Well, I think we get a little bit mixed up with the brain and the mind right? Mm -hmm. So like your brain is just an organ, like any other organ, like your kidney. Um, But then it's also somehow correlated with this thing we call the mind, like which is your conscious experience. So and and so that's really tricky, because you seem to think like, well, I can think my way out of this, you know, like it's it's not like a brain problem. It's like a mind problem. But you wouldn't want to you wouldn't like think yourself out of kidney disease, right? It's just it's it's kind of similar in that sense that sometimes it's just an organ with dysfunction that needs a little bit of help. I got off track there. What was your original question? No, no, I get what you're saying. Yeah, like so my original question was <clears throat> is there is there a reason why people fear mental illness more than they fear physical illness, right? Because say, for instance, somebody gets, okay, obviously people are going to get scared if they get cancer. Everybody's going to get scared. <laughs> but I'm saying like, say they have a broken leg, right? They're pretty confident that doctors know what they're doing. It's going to get cured pretty quickly, right? Yeah. But when it comes to mental illness, I feel like people don't think that same way, including me. Like, because for instance, yeah. me growing up, uh, people thought I had ADHD. People thought I had bipolar. I don't know. Especially after I came back from my mission, 
when I got back home and I started getting diagnosed by different doctors, it just seemed like they would hand me a piece of paper and be like, do you check this off? I'm like, well, I feel like anybody could check this off, right? Anybody struggles with some of these stuff. And it just seemed like I was getting tossed all over the place. So is there a reason why people feel you know, a little bit more skeptical of mental illness than they do of maybe breaking a leg and having to go to a doctor. Well, it may be that you can't really see it and you can't do a blood test for it. You know, it's it's like, it's, it's something that's can be somewhat invisible of a disease. Um, and I do think psychiatry is farther behind the rest of medicine as far as like our technology and our understanding of things, partly because the brain is so incredibly complicated. Um, so, so I think it does make sense. Um, yeah. If there is one thing that you, if somebody who is struggling with mental illness, right, and they're, they are skeptical because they're like, well, with a broken leg, you can go into a doctor and they'll probably know what to do pretty much instantly. But what would you say to somebody who has a broken leg metaphorically in their mind yeah. and they're scared to go into the process of trying to figure out how to fix that? What would you say to them? I guess I would say um, you're really or at least you should be in control of the process. So you get to pick your doctor, you know, you, you get to find somebody who you think you'll click with and you get to go to them and see them. And if you don't click with them or you feel like they weren't listening to you, um, you don't have to ever go back to them, you know? Yeah. And, and we have very strict laws about privacy and security and nothing you say in front of a psychiatrist is allowed to be repeated outside of the room. Mm -hmm. So like you could go see that person and then never see them again if you hated it. Um, but it might be worth a try. You might find a good one. I guess for me, the biggest thing that I've noticed that changed, helped me improve my mental illness was um, being more independent, not trying to rely on people, getting outside, exercising, really boosted my mental illness. And I would say it basically cured, at least for me, I'm not saying that happens to everybody, but do you think maybe people are jumping to medication quicker than maybe trying to figure out what's going wrong in their own life. I think it doesn't have to be either or. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you can make all of the life improvements and you can go to therapy and you can also choose to use medication to help you get out of the hole as well. Yeah. What did you, so, but if somebody say their lives are hard, right? So say maybe they're, maybe they're, they're a gamer, right? And they just sit at home, they're playing games all day. And then they're like, Oh, well, I just feel down all the time. I feel like I have no friends. Would you rather give them medication first? Or would you rather say, hey, maybe get away from the the video games and start going outside a little more? My thinking would be, are they sitting inside in the dungeon all day playing games because they're depressed? (laughs) It might be a two-way street, you know? Sometimes it's really hard to get going with the life changes if you're in a depression. And so sometimes medicine can, like, kind of jumpstart you out of it, you know? But I would say that, at least in my point of view, maybe people are jumping too quickly to assume that they have a mental illness before maybe looking at, okay, well, maybe you could fix some areas yourself that could improve your mental illness. So would you say that there are some things that somebody should do beforehand before they even go see a psychiatrist or they go see somebody for mental for, for their their struggles right you can certainly try. I would always encourage everybody to make positive life changes if you can. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm thinking is um, what did you just say before? before this i was saying that like from i talking about my personal experience yeah, yeah yeah so when i was going through it and i was trying to improve my mental illness i was like okay well it's good to to maybe go to a mental uh, mental health doctor and start talking to people right but maybe there are some things that are worsening my med- mental illness 
that I can change myself that might even get rid of what I'm feeling right now if I just get to work. Oh, I remember what I was thinking. Yeah. So you're saying like some people are just kind of jumping to like, well, I must have depression. I got to go see a doc. Um, I see that, of course, but I also see some of the opposite where there are profoundly depressed people who are like, I'm making this all up. There's nothing actually wrong with me. And it's almost like a self-sabotaging thing. So I think it could go either way where you can kind of psych yourself out and be like, there's nothing really wrong with me. You know, Mm -hmm. my life is great. I should be happy. Um, And you're kind of like psyching yourself out when actually you have profound depression type thing. Are there there certain, uh, how do I say, certain things that people can notice about whether if they're really struggling with a mental illness or not? What are those things that if somebody, say for instance, they're doing the self-sabotage, right? Where they're like, oh no, I don't have a mental illness. I'm completely fine. But really they are dealing with something. What are some of those signs that people can pay attention to, even if they have tried to change everything that they can? What are some of those signs that they can recognize for themselves? Yeah. Well, I think the crux of mental illness in general is that it will either affect your functioning in life or your suffering or both. (laughs) So if you have a change of function, whereas like you're not as social as you used to be, you're not going out and doing things you still love to do. Um, or, you know, you're like barely getting by at your job cause you can barely get there, drag yourself there in the morning, or maybe you're totally functional in all of those areas, but you are in pain, you know, like you are majorly suffering. I would think those are the, either of those are things to pay attention to that you might need some extra help. Well, a lot of people don't have their basic needs met like food mm-hmm. and shelter. And so that becomes the priority, not necessarily the depression. I think maybe that's where that gets confusing. Um, But I mean, if you think about it, your brain is like a bag of tissue with electrical impulses and chemicals shooting around in there. (laughs) Like it's it's going to malfunction from time to time. And that's what mental illness is, right? It's it's something is going wrong in your brain. And so to deny that I think is short-sighted. And like, why would that be any different from any or any other organ in your body that can malfunction? Right. This is another kind of going into more of the brain. I've always wondered how does the brain actually function, right? Because you don't have to go deep into it, but I kind of want to get an idea of when people are thinking or when they're going through depression, what what is actually happening within the mind, not just from their outside appearance, but what's actually happening in there? So that is a little bit mysterious. We can kind of see what's going on as far as like this molecule binds to this receptor and that releases this molecule and then there's some dopamine over in this part being released. But how that, those chemical processes actually translates into the feeling of depression is totally mysterious, right? Huh. And still unknown. Perhaps it will be knowable someday, but I don't know how it works. Yeah. It's, It's more of just, you know that something's happening, but you're not quite sure how or why is that is that a better way to phrase it or we know what's happening Mm -hmm. and where it's happening in the brain but why that translates into a sudden rush of anger i mean it it just you can't tell you can't correlate quite the two yet of a physical uh, a physical appearance to to your conscious experience oh hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, your brain cell basically shoots off an axon over to another brain cell which has a little dendrite and they communicate there okay and i noticed that a lot, like especially with the the three, the three chemical or the three mental illness, main and mental illness categories that I was talking about. The, yeah, the crazy sure. names I can't pronounce. <laughs> um, I was, with those, I noticed I did a little research on how they work, and from what I could see, they don't actually just 
insert dopamine or insert serotonin. That's not how they work. What they do is they almost act like a barrier between the, the de- uh, what did you say, the dendronites? Or... The axon and the dendrite. Yeah, yes. they act as a barrier. So instead of getting received back into the, the transmitter, it bounces back around. So it gets used up a little more. Is that is that how they work? Or More or less, yeah. Like, for instance, the, the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, basically they're letting serotonin hang around in that junction between the two nerve cells. It, they're letting serotonin hang around there longer so that it can do its job a little bit more efficiently. Is, is there a reason why doctors, or not doctors, but just pharmacists are using that as a way how, why does that improve somebody's mental health in the first place why that's the thing yeah. we, we don't know right mm-hmm. we we don't know well, i wish i had an awesome answer for you yeah because like with serotonin if they're if they're using a serotonin or you know one of those uptake inhibitors whatever, whatever one it is why does that make them feel better and you got, and there's no answer for that i don't have an answer for that man what does the future look like for psychiatry i know that you've been working in it for quite a long time now you've you've been worked with a lot of kids and you've probably done a lot of read a lot of research and everything what would you say the future is like for for psychiatry or, or for the field of mental mental illness for that matter i think and i hope it's going to keep honing in on more effective treatments with fewer side effects um there's some really exciting research coming out on psychedelics in particular um that's looking really cool there's like ketamine research and psilocybin and mdma <laughs> so um that uh, for like treatment resistant depression and PTSD and even addiction stuff that's on the horizon. So that's going to be really exciting to see where some of that stuff goes. Um, there's TMS is a relatively, I guess it's not that new treatment, but there's, you know, there's transmagnetic cranial stimulation, which is like using magnets to move things around in the brain. I know, right? It sounds crazy, Whoa. but it's actually kind of effective. Um, so there's cool stuff like that on the horizon. And then looking like deep into the future, I'm wondering about gene therapy, if that's going to play a role at some point. And we may get to a point where we actually are curing mental illnesses. But as of now, we're not there. So I just accepted a position at West Virginia University. So I'm going to be moving there over the summer. Yeah. Um, and that's going to be really cool because I'm hoping it'll give me um, a little bit of a foot into the door of research Um, which isn't really available right now. So I'll definitely still be doing clinical work, working with kids, seeing patients and everything, maybe incorporating a little bit of research. Um, I've got a lot of ideas. uh, So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. With a mental illness, how much would you say is is an actual gene problem? How much is an environmental problem? I would say it depends on the mental illness itself. So Mm -hmm. some of them are very highly heritable. So like bipolar disorder and schizophrenia in particular are are pretty um, genetically correlated and have more of a genetic correlation than like um, some other things, you know. So um, I think it depends on the the particular uh, illness. Um, I would say maybe a rule of thumb would be like half and half. Half and half. That's yeah. just a rough, from my brain, probably inaccurate estimate. Are there ways that scientists can see whether somebody's going to be more susceptible or not within from genes? Can they tell that yet? If they're looking at somebody's genes, can they say, oh, they're probably going to have a higher susceptibility? I would say the more clinically relevant way we, we look at it is uh, family history. So if you come from a long line of dads with bipolar disorder, you are more likely to have that. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a little more practical than like doing a gene study and saying like, well, there are some genes that may be correlated with it type of thing, you know. So from the history, though, especially since mental illness was kind of taboo back in the days, 
is it really easy for you guys to tell whether or not somebody's going to have a mental illness? Because it wasn't really talked about that much. So if you go off from like maybe a first generation or second generation, are you really going to know enough to, to tell if they're going to have a bipolar disorder or not? You won't know for sure, but it can be really helpful. Really? And, and you can also describe to somebody, um, what bipolar disorder is. And a lot of times they'll be like, Oh man, that's my dad. Like mm-hmm. he never got diagnosed, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And so that's not a slam dunk, but it, it's a little bit of evidence at least. And with the DSM five, I'm sure you've read this too, especially being a psychiatrist and working with kids, but it seems like a lot of symptoms overlap. So yeah. I feel a lot of people can say, Oh yeah, that relates to me. Or yeah, my dad had that. So how do you guys pinpoint the differences as psychiatrists. Yeah. So that's why like the checklist kind of method is not super effective because yeah, it's going to check boxes for a lot of different things. Mm. You have to kind of look at the whole picture and you have to look at timing and timing of onset. Um, so for instance, um, a lot of people will be, will get very happy and excited and elated, right? Like that, that's kind of normal is to get super excited about something. Right. Is that excitement so over the top that you're planning a trip to go see the president to tell him about your ideas? Is it so over the top, um, you know, that you're spending all your money and getting in trouble? Um, is it lasting at least four days in a row? And is it associated with all these other things? You're not sleeping at night. You've got a ton of energy. You're starting all these projects. Your, your thoughts are going a million miles an hour. So you could say that one, you know, elation might be one symptom, but you have to put it in context of the whole illness, the whole person. And, and see if that, okay, actually, that's a manic episode, you know. Wow. Yeah, that was that's super informing to me because, I, I don't know, it, it was just interesting because I always felt that a lot of times people were just going out the DSM-5 and checkmarking boxes, right? And I'm like, well, if you look at, if you just look at, for instance, ADHD or depression and you compare the two, you're going to see a lot of overlap. Well, uh, that's what makes it tricky to diagnose yeah. things like ADHD as well, because if you come into an office complaining of trouble concentrating, that could certainly be ADHD, or it could be a symptom of depression or yeah. a symptom of anxiety. So that's why taking a really thorough history is the helpful part. Yeah, because if you're, if you're depressed, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong about this, but if you're depressed and maybe you're getting bullied at school or you feel like people are judging you, you're probably going to spend more time focusing on the problem than actually what's going on around you. So you're going to think that's a focus problem, right? Because maybe you're not performing as well in school. Maybe you're not, uh, you know, getting along with your co or your friends. And so you're all over the place, but maybe it's because you're trying to figure out how to solve your, your problem going on. Is that, is that true? Sure. That, or even that's just a primary symptom of depression is trouble concentrating. (laughs) Like that's one of the things depression does to your brain. So if I guess what I'm hearing from this is instead of looking at mental illness as an evil, right? Or something evil, look at it as something that probably everybody or a lot of people have. Maybe that's that's the whole idea of what people are, are fearing nowadays is people like Andrew Tate that are saying, no, it's just something that's made up and there's nothing wrong with you. Well, maybe everybody, mental illness is kind of like breaking a leg. Maybe there's one point in time where somebody gets an illness, right? Yeah, I agree. And I think anyone is susceptible to developing a mental illness. So nobody is totally safe. I've had people come in who are 80 in their 80s and they're having their first depressive episode. Like that's rare, but it can happen, you know? Um, So it can happen to anybody. And you're right. You can go into remission from it. It doesn't have to be your whole life story. You know, you can take medicine for a year, go into recovery and maybe never need it again. Right. And there's different, well, same with physical health. There's different levels of of yeah. issues that people deal with. And the same with mental illness. I think people are thinking that a mental illness is something wrong with you that was just genetically wrong or, or you brought it upon yourself. But maybe it's 
a lot like physical physical health too, where things pop up that are out of your control and you got to go talk to somebody. That's fine. I think it's helpful to make the comparison because yeah, it dispels some of the mystery and some of the shame that is really unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Wesley, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Is there anything else that you would want to bring up, especially for our listeners that are, are wanting to maybe start improving their mental health or maybe start learning ways to fear it less and just look at it as how it is? What are some things that they can start doing or, or, or you know, doing in their lives to start improving that yeah, in sure. your own experience or with your own clients that you've worked with as well? Yeah. I mean, I would say the first and most important thing is get it if you feel like you are maybe having a mental illness uh, problem getting a good therapist you trust and getting a if you want to a good psychiatrist that you trust that can talk to you about medicine options if that's the route you want to go and keeping in mind that you can go see somebody one time and if it doesn't work out it doesn't click you don't have to see them ever again um but they may have something to offer you and um and i would also tell people to um just be well yeah (laughs) i wish you well yeah, I just care about yourself. Figure yeah, out what's going on. Right. Do things yeah. that make you happy. That's what the whole point of, of all of this is, is to improve quality of life and decrease suffering for the short time that we're here. Yeah. So, you know, go have fun. If you're not having fun, if you're not enjoying life, there's something wrong. You may need to make some changes. Yeah, and I don't know about you, but I, I think, you know, comparing mental health to physical health too, you think about it, well, we have access to some of the best medical things here in the U.S., right? We have some of the best access to medical medical you know, buildings or doctors, whatever it is, or equipment here in the U.S., whereas in other countries, they probably don't have access to that. So instead of fearing something that could give us a lot of benefit, instead, be grateful for what we have and use it when you need it. So, Wesley, anything else you want to say? I don't think so. Yeah, well, thank you so much. I've learned a ton from this interview. Oh, I'm really cool. glad that you've come on here, and, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot about this, too, and, and take something from it, so... Thank you so much for tuning in, guys, and join me next Sunday for a new episode. One, two, three.